This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Luck as a Branch Point. Sense of Wonder in Horror. PvP RPGing. And Moving Thanksgiving... Our anchor sponsor this week is author Stephen Jankowitz. His works include Tolkien-inspired fantasy suitable for adults and for young adults. Relevant to the interests of Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff fans, however, are his weird tales in the Lovecraft tradition. His first anthology, The Muse of the Monstrous, introduces you to such weird figures as a vengeful housemaid, an occult whaling captain, and a scientist who makes a pact with a forest shambler. His latest is the sensual but disturbing Medusa the Drowned and other tales. Journey with him to opium dens, the creature-beswarmed corners of upstate New York, and the depths hidden beneath the city of Bath. Head to Amazon to find his work in ebook and paper formats. Follow the link from our site. That's Stephen Jankowitz, author of Medusa the Drowned and other tales, and The Muse of the Monstrous. The rattle of dice and the slushing of leftover candy bars in the bowl uh, tell us that we have entered the sugary confines of the gaming hut. And down here in the gaming hut, we have to decide whether or not we are going to reach into the bowl and pull out a coveted Three Musketeers or a stupid bag of candy corn. Robin, luck. I commend to you luck. What are we asking about luck today in the gaming hut? So we're looking at whether luck or randomness is an interesting or useful or valuable branch point. So sometimes, for example, you will see when you're looking at an adventure, it will call on you to make a role as GM to see what happens. And that role is not a player-facing role, not something that the players are aware of, but something that goes on in the background of the world. And I guess the idea is that the world has all of these humming elements to it, and there's an element of randomness to whatever the players are doing. So let's uh, spin the wheel of our example wheel and pick up post-apocalyptic as the uh, example we're going to use here. So in a post-apocalyptic game, it might say that there is a 30% chance that when you open this door, that you find mutants on the other side of the door. Now, that definitely creates a branch point in the narrative. The story could go one way if you run into mutants and the other way if you do not. But is that interesting as a branch point? Because it is not something that the players get to influence or even know about, is that actual branching, is that an actual indeterminate narrative? Or is that just playing with the fact that you can roll randomly to do things? Well, I think that if the players never know that it's a branch point, right? I mean, and this is as opposed to a thing where uh, you, where you're in a system where it's foregrounded, where, for I mean, the classic example would be like the random potion mixability table on D&D, right? You, you've got two potions, you mix them, you roll on the table, everyone's looking, you know what's going to happen. Or the random, uh, what kind of animal companion can I summon as a druid? Those kind of random tables that the players know about and are part of versus the kind of random tables that the players, in theory, and obviously every game's practice is going to be different, uh, that the players don't know of, don't know were random or aren't part of. They may know that a random role is being made, like for a wandering monster, or uh, in the case of the post-apocalyptic world, you open up the door of the Piggly Wiggly, and there's a 30% chance that there's mutants, and there's a 10% chance that there's a, a salvageable power tool, and there's 20% chance that there's canned food, and whatever it is, right? Because it's the random Piggly Wiggly table. The players don't get to roll on the random Piggly Wiggly table, but they know that in the post-apocalyptic genre, the scrounging in Piggly Wigglies is kind of part of the activity, and so uh, they will expect, you know, assuming that they've played any role-playing games ever before, that opening the door of a Piggly Wiggly is going to be more of a random act than, say, going into uh, the Thunderdome run by the Master of Disaster or whatever, right? Right, and a lot of random choices are, in fact, the payoff to an actual choice that the players get to make. And, you know, the 
ultimate example there is your wandering monster table where, and this is something that's fallen away with more complicated F20 games where you have to prep more and the illusion that which monsters you're going to encounter on any given night is less foregrounded these days because you know that you're going to probably run into the monsters that the GM has prepared for you to meet and the more complicated your iteration of whatever game it is, however more stat-heavy and prep-heavy it is, the more likely that you're going to run into the opponents that the GM has prepared for you and what might change the context in which you run into them. But by gosh, the GM has spent two hours on this encounter uh, with the Skulks, so you're going to encounter the Skulks. Mm. But let's say that we're moving back in time to the uh, easier, peasier days of the Wandering Monster Table. Well, although the monster that you run into is randomly determined on a table and the chances of your having run into a monster at all is randomly determined, your decision to hang around in the dungeon for longer and therefore expose yourself to the added risk or to go into the forest as opposed to sticking on the trade route. Right. Um, You have made a choice and that choice may or may not lead to a dilemma Um, And if it doesn't lead to a dilemma, you're going to be led to some other different dilemma. But the idea that you basically pay an ablative cost for hanging around in the dungeon does flow from a player choice. So that's not actual randomness per se. But if you have a mystery adventure where, you know, you need this book and there's a 30% chance that somebody has taken it out of the library... And that that might indeed lead to another scene in which you have to go track down that guy and get the book from him. It doesn't really make a lot of sense as a branch point to put that in the adventure. Although, but you sometimes do see this. So is this something that we can both agree on is just basically not a best practice in any way in an adventure? Or is there a room or a style of play that posits a sort of more uh, random universe where the um, messed upness of events is simulated by under the screen random die rolls by the GM. Well, again, the, we're talking about the difference between under the screen random die rolls, which in theory are indistinguishable from someone just having a really, really detailed prep, right? So that they know every minute of the game what you're going to be running into and what kind of monsters and what kind of treasure and what kind of this and what's in all the Piggly Wigglies. And they've got it all written out, you know, Dayton of the uh, Invincible Overlord style, so that when you pull open the door to that Piggly Wiggly, it's statted out. That is functionally the same to players as a guy with one really good random Piggly Wiggly table that he just rolls on every time you go into a Piggly Wiggly. So I think that to make it a branch point the way that we're talking about, you have to have a thing where the players know that there is a random choice that is being made and that they are at least present for the randomness, whether the GM rolls the die or the, you know, loudest player rolls the die or the luckiest player rolls the die. You know, they see that the die is being rolled. They see that there is genuinely a a chance for the story as opposed to for, you know, a bullet to go one way or the other. And I think that you can certainly say that that is a uh, possibility of uh, as a game style because obviously it's the way a ton of us played Dungeons and Dragons back in the day, where you would take the wandering monster table out from behind the screen and you'd put it out in the middle of the of, of the group, or everyone had their own copy of the DMG, so they knew what the monster wandering monster table was for swamp and for jungle and for forest and for mountains, and they knew what the role was going to mean. And whether they saw the die being thrown or whether they threw the die themselves was irrelevant because they knew that there was a random component to it. So I think that players generally can, you know, get fun out and GMs can build a a story and maybe the story comes sort of retroactively, like we talk about the notion that emergent play, emergent story comes from play, right? So uh, a football game as it's going on doesn't really have a story, but at the end of it, you can say, oh, this is the period at which the Packers really rallied back and this is the point at which the Dolphins collapsed and this is the point in the story of these two teams fighting as opposed to just, you know, a random, you know, box uh, score. And and so you look at the same sort of thing can happen with even a fully randomized or fully luck-dependent uh, evening of D&D play, because they can say, oh, this is when uh, we ran into those hill giants instead of the, um, you know, giant ants that we were hoping to hit. And so that, you know, m- made changes and we had to run around and do all these things. And I think that 
a purely randomly driven universe is certainly, first of all, it's, you know, it, it's been proven in play to work. And second of all, it could fit plenty of worlds, including, I think, your post-apocalyptic example, uh, because if you're trying to send a message that the world is fundamentally chaotic and that only the strong survive or that only the clever survive, you want that sort of of branching luck. I think that the closer you're trying to get to a world where rationality is supposed to guide it, whether that's because the setting is rational or because rationality is the dominant uh, characteristic of the heroes, you know, your your paradigmatic mystery example, I think that that's maybe where you don't want to have to roll randomly to see if the butler is at home or roll randomly to see if uh, the notebooks are, uh, you know, inside the safe or if the safe has, you know, a fair to lance snake in it. So by foregrounding luck in that way, by making it apparent when the story branches depending on a random occurrence, you are introducing that sense of chaos. But there's another way to create if sort of a functional equivalency between a choice-based branch point or an ability-based branch point, at least. Like, you're, you know, whether you're able to climb the wall determines whether you get into the Piggly Wiggly or not. Mm -hmm. If you then, as a character, have a luck stat or a luck resource or something else that models the role of randomness in the world, but works like the other things on your character sheet, it feels more like the players have some sort of impact on whether the story goes to the mutants in the Piggly Wiggly or empty Piggly Wiggly branch point. And that can be more or less desirable depending on what you're trying to do. So you could very simply have the players roll the percentile dice chance of the mutants being in the Piggly Wiggly. And that could then, uh, that sort of feels on some sort of emotional level that the players got to you know, pull the lever that decided whether the lucky thing happened or not. Or you can go all the way to saying that luck is just another thing that your character has in the universe. And you can point to characters, although admittedly mostly in sort of quasi-comic adventures, where being lucky is what that character does. Uh, you know, the, the Danny Kay character in The Court Jester mm -hmm. or an Inspector Clouseau, for example. Uh, luck is their main iconic ability. So what are the differences between choosing to make luck uh, visible to the players but otherwise completely external versus making some characters luckier than others and whether they try to uh, spend their luck at any given moment determining whether there are mutants in the Piggly Wiggly? Well, there's also the difference between spending the luck and just having the luck as a stat. So, for example, in Call of Cthulhu Classic, there's a luck stat, and it's five times your power, or whatever it is, and then if everyone's falling down the side of the mountain, you roll your luck, and the guy who rolls his luck doesn't get hit by as many rocks on the way down, right? Or you, you know, reached into the safe, and it was indeed full of a Ferdinand snake, and you roll your luck to see whether or not you get bit, as opposed to your dexterity. That, I think, is different from a, a system like the new Call of Cthulhu is going to have, in theory, where they have a given amount of luck, and as you spend it to change the numbers on the dice, and I assume that it's only for dice that you roll, but maybe it can be for dice that the GM rolls, um, because those are going to have two totally different feels, uh, obviously, within the game setting, that you're going to have luck as an expendable resource, and that is different from a game like GURPS, in which you can actually buy the advantage luck, and you have the ability to make the GM re-roll a roll that screws you, or to re-roll a roll of your own, but no one else does because you paid lots of points for luck. And so you're like the Danny Kay character along with Conan and um, uh, Elongated Man and whoever else the, 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 the iconic uh, uh, character party is. And so you have an ability that is like a super ability uh, that other characters don't have. And that's your sort of your specialty. And maybe you can sort of backtrack that to some notion that maybe if Gary Gygax had thought of it, that uh, the rogue character class in the, or the thief character class, because he was basically supposed to be a uh, gray mouser. And one of the great things about the gray mouser is that he is a pretty lucky guy, as well as being a good swordsman is that that would be the rogue ability as opposed to making up a, a skill system that, that is sort of taggled on there. You just have the rogue, the thief's ability just to be luckier than the fighter. And so maybe he can't take as many ax hits, but he can spend luck to avoid being hit. And I think that those, are sort of all different 
types of qualities that you can have a character luck stat represent and how it feels in play is going to determine is going to be determined by the specific rule set that you use. So a luck that you expend is different from a luck that you just have. A luck that the party can expend as a whole is different from a luck that only one member can expend. And whether or not you can only spend it on your roles versus the GM's universe-type roles is a different thing, because if the GM rolls on the Wandering Monster table and you're like, oh, hill giants, I'm going to spend a luck thing and we're going to get giant ants and kill them and take their gold dust, that's different from... Oh, Hill Giants, I'm going to roll, and he has to hit Bob instead of me. And there are certainly still players who object to making choices that are outside of their character's psychology. And so, because a character doesn't decide to be lucky, he, uh, even in a system where luck is a resource, that you, as the authorial figure controlling your character, decide that he will now be lucky. There are people who have a problem with that because they don't want to have that sort of bifurcated... Uh, consciousness. Now that uh, brings us to a whole other segment, but it is sort of worth noting. And I guess the ultimate rule of luck in genre varies depending on what the genre is and varies according to what its sense of the agency of the characters are and how much of a, a romp an adventure is, because a rompy adventure is more willing to admit the a character's positive luck as a means of overcoming problems uh, versus uh, luck that works against you when the universe is out to get you, for example, in horror, mm -hmm. and how tied to who you are in your present circumstances, the obstacles that get in your path are. So, for example, in a horror movie, it is perfectly acceptable to have the character who's trying to escape the guy with the chainsaw encounter a variety of essentially random BS obstacles along the way. You know, the the car suddenly won't start, even though it's not the chainsaw-wielding guy who prevented the car from starting. It's not a decision that somebody else made to neglect the maintenance of the car, and it's not something that's been set up in any way, but the car won't start. Yeah, it's just the cussedness of things. Yeah, and it's just because the, the universe is contriving towards terror, just as in a romp, uh, rompy adventure, the universe is contriving towards rescue or towards hilarity or towards hilarity um and so and and hilarity often is the just the humorous version of horror where the mm -hmm. universe is still out to get you you have you know the hero is trying to get out of the apartment and then he trips and falls and trips over the dog even though the dog has not been established until now right. and again that's acceptable because that's the operating ethos of the universe. And again, that's uh, part of it is not necessarily the difference between bad luck. It's not necessarily a question of uh, the bad luck makes it horror and good luck makes it a romp. Obviously, it's perspective. Bugs Bunny's power in the comics is, or the cartoons is to have bad luck happen to his foes a lot right. of times. Or obviously, Roadrunner has the same uh, magic ability. Most of the protagonists of the great Warner Brothers classics have that ability to one degree or another. And so... You know, it's still hilarious that the universe is out conspiring against Yosemite Sam, and it's even funnier when they're conspiring against Daffy Duck, because Daffy Duck, in other comics, sometimes gets a protagonist power of luck, and and so that creates a a sort of a uh, a sensation that in a world in which Bugs Bunny is a malevolent creature uh, who's trying to kill you, his ability to make you drop the car keys or run into a a, a thing that's painted like a door would be scary and horrifying sort of Freddy Kruegerish, but in, in the cartoons where he's our, our identification figure and he's the protagonist, we're happy to see all those horrible things happen to somebody. Although, although actually Bugs is our identification figure, but not our protagonist. It's, it's Elmer Fudd or Wile E. Coyote who is the protagonist who sets the events in motion, and mm. uh, Bugs or Roadrunner are actually the uh, representations of their hubris mm -hmm. that uh, that bring them down. I think it depends on the cartoon. There are, there are cartoons where Bugs takes an action, and the result of that action is increasing hilarity, as opposed to where Bugs is merely, you know, innocently trying to eat uh, carrots and uh, stay out of trouble, and someone comes and makes trouble for Bugs. I, th I think that a lot of that is because Bugs is created across, you know, a couple of different uh, cultural epochs in which uh, being left alone you know, obviously was exalted in the 30s and was less exalted after the 30s. And different creators, too, and different mm -hmm. formulas that change over time. Yeah, you you can probably generalize less about Bugs Bunny than you can about James Bond. 
<laughs> this is sounding very much like we are creeping into a uh, animation hut. Are yes, we uh, <laughs> crept into the digression hut? That's for sure. <laughs> that's for sure. Is it, does that mean that we have uh, literally exhausted our luck? I, I think we should count ourselves lucky to be moving on to the next segment. Slabtown Games is proud to announce the Kickstarter campaign for their new tablet-based tabletop role-playing game, Storyscape. Storyscape introduces an exciting new breed of role-playing game system, featuring an innovative system of game mechanics designed by none other than fledgling newcomer Robin D. Laws. Storyscape takes the scout work out of gaming by putting the charts, math, and number crunching under the hood, letting you spend more time gaming and less time interacting with the rules. It's designed to be universal and easy to expand, and will allow you to play in almost any genre you care to name. Starting with the fantasy build, which of course is the most in-demand build for any role-playing project, Game Masters will be able to fine-tune settings and difficulty levels, so whether you prefer heroic high fantasy or gritty dangerous noir, Storyscape can make it happen. Storyscape is chock-full of easy-to-use, lightning-fast features and tools for Game Master and players alike. From virtual miniature creation to the fog of war, to automated journals, all of it inside your tablet. The built-in Storyscape Marketplace will give you access to the best adventure settings and campaigns created by Slabtown Games and by other users worldwide, and will also let you put your own creations up for sale. The Storyscape Kickstarter is your best chance to get your hands on exclusive content and beta access for your gaming group. Head on over to www.slabtowngames.com and check it out. The clanking of chains, the yowl of werewolves, and the slow drip, drip, drip of Ikor indicate that we have, I think for the first time, ventured into the chilling precincts of the Horror Hut. And this week we're going to look at a question posed to us by our lead sponsor, Stephen Jankowitz, and that's, can horror and a sense of wonder coexist? And I thought before we move on to the question of those two things together, Ken, I'd ask you to zero in on the definition of sense of wonder because it's something that fans of science fiction in particular use to describe the thing that they like about the literature that they like and for me therefore is a term to which i'm somewhat ambivalent towards so how would you nail down uh, this term sense of wonder what does it mean I think that when it is used, and it's one of those terms that has a not a, a linear definition, but sort of a cloud definition, right? That we can all think of examples of things that give us a sense of wonder, whereas drawing a line between a sense of wonder and a sense of something else may be a little murkier. But we can all sort of understand that um, uh, the first shot of the inside of the Genesis planet is a sense of wonder moment in science fiction, or uh, the first time in a, in a Doc Smith adventure where they invent something that opens up the whole scope of the story again, right? That that's a sense of wonder moment. Or even uh, early on in, in an Edgar Rice Burroughs story where he's sort of laying out the richly colored world that uh, John Carter or uh, Tamar of Pellucidar have, have, have suddenly seen, that those are sort of iconic sense of wonder moments. And I think that in general, um, the sense of wonder, I would say, is an entirely positive or mostly positive uh, half of what Burke called the sublime. And I think we've talked about the sublime and the beautiful in the podcast before, but Burke's sublime, I think, has with it that sense literally of awe or um, uh, astonishment that you get in a positive way as opposed to the sort of negative, scary, creepy way, or, you know, at least the, the ma making you feel insignificant as opposed to making you feel like a witness of something great that Burke means when he talks about the sublime. So maybe you might say it's the beautiful part of the sublime, or you might say it's something that exists on the border of the beautiful and the sublime. But I think in general, the notion that it's that moment where we, the viewer, or we, the viewpoint character, see that the world is bigger, richer, more possible, more vast, and more... And all of those in a, in a, in a sense that means that it's pregnant with possibility as opposed to that we see that it's bigger and more vast and more horrible and and also more horrible and more out to get us right that a sense of wonder in uh John Carter is different from the uh same sort of revelation in say at the mountains of madness 
In terms of the Hamlet's hit points beat analysis system, I would describe the sense of wonder moment that people are describing as a positive moment of emotional gratification that is uh, not separate from, but a little bit detached from the story currently being told, in which you experience a sense of awe and perhaps unfolding imaginative possibility around a description of an imaginary thing or place. Um, and I think also the term sense of wonder is something that people use as a shorthand to describe the feeling they had when they were 12 or 13 or 11, or maybe the age is even younger now in the world of Harry Potter, where you first got turned on to the fantastic and the speculative and imaginative fiction, and that it's sort of a, a shorthand for the thing that draws you to these genres rather than to romance or literary realism or whatever. Yeah, I, I think that um, I, certainly people have... Have, over the past, they've sort of tried to, you know, when they try and build a, a, an ancient lineage for science fiction, they, they take it back to, uh, you know, literally uh, mythological uh, uh, miracle stories or, or wonder stories, where you, th their, uh, their belief is that people who sat around and listened to the stories of the labors of Hercules had the same sense of wonder, of the sense that the divine was making itself manifest in the actions of the world, that we get now out of a relatively secular literature like science fiction, or in some cases, uh, out of fantasy, where you get a sense that even if it's a subcreation, it's a subcreation that is comprehensible by man, that it is not part of some divine order, but it creates an analogous feeling as was created in the, in the, the guy that was the spectator of a miracle play or the person who was listening to the story of the Argonauts back in the day. I'm not sure that I buy that myself, but that's, you can, you can make that argument, I guess. Right. And I think the word that, uh, sort of ties that together and also allows us a bridge to the more negative emotional vibration of horror is the word awe. Right. That it's something that, you know, in the film version, the characters are, go you're going to have a pan across all the characters, uh, reaction shots and their, uh, mouths are going to be open in, in awe at whatever this thing is. Um, so in horror, of course, a moment of awe is, paired with a moment of dread. Uh, and so are there writers on your mental list who, uh, horror writers who come closer to evoking a, a sense of wonder than others? Well, I think obviously, you know, a lot is going to be buried under that term coexist, right? Because are you asking, can they coexist in the same novel? You know, that's transparently obvious that they can. A Dream Quest of Unknown Kadath contains both sort of pure, fantastic sense of wonder and pure horrifying sense of wonder moments, right? In the sense that there's the positive awe of having the, the first of all, seeing the side of the Sunset City and then the revelation of, of some uh, parts of, of Ulthar, the Dreamlands. And then there is the more Burkean uh, sense of, of devastation and awe at, you know, near Lathotep's chasm or the, the, the plateau of the, of the Man in the Yellow uh, Mask or any of these other sorts of, or the Vale of Pnath with all the ghouls and the, and the bulls in it. And so there's lots of, uh, of moments that can that that play both both sorts of parts within the course of that novel, and then the question is how close can you get it within the same moment? I suppose how much can your wonder and your terror overlap at the at the exact same moment? Lovecraft tries it again with uh, Strange High House in the Mist, where he's literally alternating as the ratchet of the story turns between terror and awe as he's building that story, and I think that you can look. To some extent, at other authors, um, I would say Clive Barker in Imagica does a really good job of blending wonder and horror in uh, in, in that novel. I think that uh, Barker does it less, um, it, it's not his primary goal in a lot of his other works, but in some of his other works he certainly is able to. Um, the sense that you get as the conspiracy is revealed in Nightbreed, or, or rather in The Cabal, in his novel The Cabal, there's a similar sense that you get to that as, uh, say, Umberto Eco opens up the possibility of a grand conspiracy in Foucault's Pendulum before he shuts it down as a postmodern joke. But you have that same sort of possibility. I, I think the literature of paranoia is full of those sorts of moments where it's like, no, this conspiracy goes deeper than you think it does. And there's that same sort of moment as when, um, you know, the um, uh, Aresians reveal to uh, Kimball Kinison, no, actually, they're not just pirates. 
They are part of a gigantic evil uh, conspiracy run from the planet of Boscone or whatever. And so there's a big, there's a big moment where the universe got bigger and it also got scarier. And I think that trying to sort of parse those out and saying this is more big and this is more scary, I, I think part of the point of, of, of that horrific vastation, your Cthulhu moment, if you will, is to combine those as, as close as you possibly can. And Lovecraft obviously does it in Call of Cthulhu, where he is both presenting a world that is more pregnant with possibility, but also more pregnant with horror. And he's using almost literally the same uh, emotional palette that, uh, say, Spielberg does in Jurassic Park. I think where these two things intersect, indeed, is through the question of awe, because something that is awesome or numinous, whether that is a positive or negative, can often be largely a matter of your proximity to it. Mm -hmm. If you are too close to the rocket ship's engines as the shuttlecraft goes up uh, into the atmosphere, you are burned to a crisp. If mm -hmm. you are get too close even to positive or ambiguous uh, deities, you may be driven mad because your ability to encompass them shorts out and you are too small in the presence of that vastness. So that gets you uh, something like Algernon Blackwood's The Centaur, in which the proceedings are not horrific in sort of an obvious guy with a chainsaw chasing you or multi-tentacled monster sort of way, but it is about a brush with another mythical world that is too much to handle. Um, and you find that uh, in, in Machen as well, in, in The Great God Pan. Yeah, I think that, um, you know, there's a reason in the Bible that the first thing angels always say to you is, be not afraid, right? <laughs> yes. It's yeah. not because you're uh, handing them some hamburgers and candies because you're excited to see them. Yeah, no, I mean, there's, there's the, the notion of the, of the terrible nature of the deity, the notion that the, re the rational response to visitation by any deity, whether it's one you like that's, you know, more positive and friendly like Jesus or Zeus versus one that's you know, really bad news like um, uh, Cthulhu or uh, Kali Ma is to fall on your face and grovel and don't look at it. And that is, th and that is sort of what is assumed to be the natural reaction to deity. And that transcends pretty much all human cultures. There's very few human cultures where if they have a concept of a transcendent deity, your response should be, you know, uh, shake hands with it. That's usually the job of some culture hero or interlocutor. It's like, it's not you that does it. It's Glooscap that can go up and talk to, uh, you know, the Sky Twins or whoever. I don't do it myself. I've got my, my pal Glooscap. Hercules is the guy who's going to have fist fights with the gods, not me. I, I have Hercules for that. That, that right. sort of, uh, intermediary response. And I think that when you were talking about, uh, Blackwood, there's a, there's a really good, you know, set of examples in Blackwood's work. Uh, and obviously, The Willows is his classic, you know, sense of horror story in which almost literally nothing happens, but you have also that dawning sense of a greater power that, that you don't understand. And I think Blackwood is another uh, terrific example of that. Machen, of course, has a story that takes all of his horror tropes and turns them into, uh, it really into religious delight tropes, and that's The Great Return, where the Holy Grail comes back to a village in Wales for a little bit. And the language of that story is very, very similar to something like The Great God Pan. Tim Powers, obviously, is another classic uh, author who's capable of presenting these um, moments of vastation uh, in, in uh, Last Call, for example, when they're dealing with, whether they're dealing with the positive or the negative versions of these tarot archetypes, it's still a, a fairly terrifying but also wondrous uh, moment. We'd also be remiss not to mention Clark Ashton Smith, who managed the trick of writing horror stories set in other worlds, mm -hmm. uh, which is uh, very tricky because normally horror plays on the relationship between the ordinary and the mundane and the weird and the threatening, and he is able to successfully uh, summon up the reality of a completely other world and then set a, a horror story there. And uh, I think he's probably of, of the, uh, you know, 20th century writers, probably the one who successfully combines the sense of wonder and the sense of horror, uh, probably the most often. It's kind of his um, specialty. And it's, uh, I think, a shame that he is not 
more read these days. Well, I mean, Smith, I mean, he's just as uh, as difficult a writer to read for someone who was raised on, you know, post-Hemingway transparent prose uh, as Lovecraft, and you don't get a, you know, you don't get a geek membership card by reading Clark Ashton Smith. You don't get to understand everyone's jokes. All you get is the glorious experience of having read Clark Ashton Smith, which has to be its own reward, I guess, in this uh, debased modern era. I guess what we need is a Clark Ashton Smith role-playing game and to release it in 1979. Yeah. When there's the liminal space for it. Yes, or or a really uh, successful um, uh, TV show set on uh, Poisonous or um, uh, Zothique or something. Um, In cinema, you can uh, point to uh, Mario Bava's Planet of the Vampires, I think, uh, has both of those things at at once in it. Uh, I guess the classic moment of... Wonder and awe turning to horror is the uh, opening of the Ark at the end of uh, Raiders of the Lost Ark. Mm-hmm. Um, and I guess you could also point to the uh, production design, if not the text, of Prometheus. Yeah, I think that there's also a moment like that where I personally get a sense of wonder and a sense of horror. And I've, I've alluded to it a number of times, but in the uh, original thing, the Christian Nyby Howard Hawks, the thing, where they are... They've they've found the 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 the, the weird metal uh, uh, reading from the Arctic ice, and they're going out to the ice, and they've got their metal detectors, and they're trying to see what it is. And the camera is up on a crane shot, and you see the men spread out and spread out and spread out as they're finding more and more of this metal, and they go all the way around. And you, the viewer, realize before they, the people, do that they are going around a gigantic flying saucer that has apparently been buried in the ice for millions of years. And that is, you know, that's almost a Lovecraftian moment for me in terms of opening up the universe of what at the time was a relatively straightforward black and white you know, guys in Alaska making jokes about their girlfriends type movie. And then it sort of opens up all at once and creates that moment of horror and wonder that for all the really great stuff in Carpenter's version of the thing, he never really has a moment like that because with him, the thing comes in with the dog and then it's all lifeboat movie. There's no moment of cosmic awe in uh, the Carpenter one. And so that is one of the reasons that I always recommend that people also watch uh, the Christian Nyby uh, Howard Hawks the thing because it is so so much better in some places at, at presenting that cosmic awe and that sort of um, that horror horrific sense of wonder that we've been talking about and I guess also uh, Del Toro in Pan's Labyrinth enters that territory as well where the horrors are both horrific and beautiful uh, mm-hmm. and it's playing with that idea of fairy which I think is another classic example from myth as the thing that can be either uh, wondrous or murderous, depending on how close you get to it and how tightly you follow its rules. Or perhaps how, how closely you let it get to you. Um, one of those, uh, it, it, like the, um, the the poem Christabel or other things like that, where you have the sort of the lamia, the, the seductive creature that is both beautiful and, you know, will, of course, destroy you if you, if you let it too close to you. But part of that uh, attraction is I'm not I'm not so sure that, that something like that or even like the individual fairies in Pan's Labyrinth, although the whole concept of fairyland is maybe closer to it. I think that those are more, you know, what you might say, can horror and glamour coexist, right? As opposed to horror and a sense of wonder. I think a sense of wonder almost has to be, um, if not geolo- geological or geographical, at least has to be larger than a single figure, right? I, I think that if you're very, very good at filming... Uh, you might be able to get a sense of wonder out of Superman. And maybe, you know, the first time that we all saw Christopher Reeve fly, we got that. But the second time you see Christopher Reeve, it's like, okay, he's just Superman, that's cool. Whereas, in theory, every time you read about Cthulhu, there should be that moment of horror and wonder. Um, You know what else is uh, beautiful and cruel at the same time, Ken? Um, What's that? A segue to the next segment. Oh, beautiful, but cruel.
Our next sponsor is Kotadama Heavy Industries and their game Ryutama, the natural fantasy RPG, translated by Matt Sanchez and Andy Kitkowski. A game that focuses on travel and exploration of a fantastic natural world instead of combat and treasure. What? That's crazy talk. Crazy talk indeed, but indeed the Game Master interacts with the world through his own character called the Ryujin, or Dragon Person. Eight different classes are available to players, from artisans and merchants to farmers and nobles. The characters are the NPCs that the heroes would encounter in a fantasy village. Simple rules for traveling make the journey between destinations fun, but perilous. It includes new rules, classes, and scenarios unique to the English translation. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Leo Pal Raffinson asks Ken and Robin, how do you run a game that feels like Heat or Catch Me If You Can, where the PCs, though they might have been friends in another life, directly oppose one another? Uh, Robin, do you have a a overarching guiding paradigm that you could use for that kind of PvP play? Step one in PvP is make sure all of your players are equally invested in PvP. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people come to role-playing looking for a cooperative experience that frees them from the stated or unstated aggression of other gaming where there's a winner and a loser, and they're looking for a cooperative experience. And uh, you will have people in any given group through their sort of more standard traditional play show different attitudes toward the degree of cooperation that they're looking for in their gaming experience. So uh, before we go on to any of our other advice, the big thing is to make sure that all of the players really want to do this as an experiment as much as you really want to do it, and that you're not selling them on something that they're reluctant to engage with, but that as soon as you mention it, they're like, oh, yeah, we could, yeah, I want to be in this side, or I don't want to be on that side. And if you don't have that level of enthusiasm to uh, kick at the traces, I would uh, retreat to the realm of thought experiment, first mm -hmm. of all. Or run it in a con scenario where it doesn't matter. Right. Um, and I guess the, the next question to ask yourself is, is there's two possible ways to do it. And one of those ways to do it is in a siloed information system where the players are somehow separated and they are working across purposes without really interacting. Uh, you know, that you, that's your heat model where mm -hmm. uh, Pacino and De Niro only meet once. Mm -hmm. um, or a suspense model where the players know what is going on even though their characters do not and you alternate scenes back and forth and so the player who is uh, on the pursuit or the players i guess if we're assuming more than two people the players on the pursued team see where uh your pursuers are doing and vice versa but are only allowed to take advantage of that information if they can justify it by winning victories and overcoming obstacles in play yeah, I think that what I might try to make these games into, uh, assuming that you just didn't want to, you know, um, like you say, just blue book it and run two different tables of, of GURPS characters, and one batch are going after the Eye of Agamotto, and the other batch are going after the Eye of Agamotto, and they, you know, maybe know that the other guys exist as NPCs, but there's no real interaction, and, you know, there's just an individual, I do this, and then the next, you know, uh, day you go to the table two and you say, this is what happened. Or, I, and, and what I might want to do is create a situation, especially where the, if the player characters are expected to meet, where the pursued and the hunters, the hunters and the hunted are expected to meet and have scenes together, I might want to do a system by which you've already determined how that scene is going to come out, and the thing that you're doing is role-playing the fun part, you know, where the bullets went, you know, what you got out of it, even if you, you know, quote unquote, lost the, the confrontation, you know, what awesome thing you said to the other guy, how much, how many clues you picked up, because the trouble with PVP in a player on player situation where both players have, you know, roughly the same degree of, of access is that you, you can't control the writing. So if in Catch Me, if you can, the first time Tom Hanks catches sight of Leo DiCaprio across the airport, he pulls out his gun and blasts him nine times, right? And it's like, well, Tom Hanks is going to face disciplinary hearings. He's going to be in a lot of trouble. They're like, yeah, but I shot Leo DiCaprio, so I'm done, right? And it, <laughs> and it's, it, 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 you know, player characters have been trained and trained and trained to 
bring as much force as they possibly can to solving the problem because they know that there's going to be more problems down the pike, right? That they have that they have a limited amount of time to get through that dungeon or to or to uh, take out that uh, mythos cult or whatever the obstacle is. They don't have an ethos or a learned experience of, well, I guess he got away this time to back you up the way that you do in sort of the literature of the con artist uh, movie or the, or the pursuit movie. Right. You have to basically come up with two parallel tracks that you know is going to lead to an intersection at the end. And then, you know, you might have a, a meeting earlier on, but there has to be some really strong constraint on one or both sides to make sure that you don't fast forward to the climax and have mm-hmm. a 30 minute session. And so, uh, you may want to look at things not quite so much in terms of one team pursuing the other, as in these two examples, but as I think the other example that you alluded to, which is two groups racing to the same goal. So that, uh, and another thing that would then come into play here that you, uh, are often looser about in other role-playing situations is a sense of time, is that you would need to very closely track how long it takes to do anything, and then time becomes a, a big issue because you know that as they're, you know, and, and even if you're going back to their pursued-pursuer model, the pursued knows that the longer he hangs around in this motel searching for the key, the greater the chance is that the uh traffic jam that is holding up the pursuer is going to end and he's going to get caught. And so you can sort of look at developing the scenario as a series of time obstacles that the players have to overcome. And they're both the pursued and the pursuer or the two teams racing toward the final goal. The main thing that they're facing is not necessarily uh, physical jeopardy, although that's, of course, another constraint. But the main constraint they're facing is how long does it take them to do things and how cleverly can they do things in order to make them take less time so that the uh, faster of the two parties is the one that's ultimately uh, going to prevail. Yeah, and I think that, you know, you can you can look at things like uh, Around the World in 80 Days or, you know, the, the wacky races even, and say, this is the sort of model that we're going for, and it's just not within the moral universe of the characters that you're going to deliberately attack each other. What you're going to do is try and throw up obstacles, sure, but, you know, a deliberate attack means that you're disqualified, right? That the Eye of Agamotto will rule that you're unworthy or that the Explorers Club will drum you out and you'll have to, you know sell pencils on the street like a like a middle class person or whatever it is um that's that, that's just a constraint of the of the game universe you're not rolling up a character who's going to just try to nobble um uh the other party and another possibility that you can put into something like a race scenario less so again in a heat scenario although i suppose you could work it um is a third faction that does exist just to kill people and that everyone can get their homicidal yayas out if the Russian mob is also in the movie with Pacino and De Niro and they're, you know, trying to, you know, muscle in on the bank robbery uh, business there in, in L.A. And so there's always that problem that you, you, you PCs, just as you're about to get De Niro, here comes the Russian mob and you have to turn and, and, and whack a bunch of them and then get out of the situation. I, I should mention in this context that I, when I was talking about a, a pre-existing format that uh, lets you predetermine whether or not you're going to win or lose a given confrontation, uh, you might want to look at the manhunting mechanics in Double Tap for Nice Black Agents, which Will Hindmarch did for kind of that exact purpose, although in this case the NPC is the vampire that you're hunting, but you could easily turn those into a pair of mechanics that you use to hunt each other uh, or to have a hunter and a hunted, each of which has some agency. You take the mechanics from Heat and the mechanics from uh, manhunts in... um, Nice black agents, and I think you can you can build out a, a pretty good model for that kind of thing, at least for sort of contemporary suspense stuff of the Catch Me If You Can Heat model. Now, both of those stories are stories of likable anti-heroes who you sort of want to see get away, but ultimately you still want to see order restored. Mm-hmm. And if you are organizing a player versus player scenario, a trickier dynamic comes into play where if it's equally possible that the pursuer 
will triumph as the pursued will triumph, you then have to make it feel emotionally right if either of those things happens, uh, which is, of course, not an issue that the uh, screenwriters of either of those films are facing. And so you have to, I think, probably tread in a world of uh, emotional ambiguity where whoever it is who loses, loses because of a fundamental uh, dramatic error, a, a sense of hubris, uh, if we're going to mention hubris uh, twice mm. in one show, I guess here we go, yeah. um, that makes it feel right for either side to lose. Uh, because if you play an exciting storyline all night and then, you know, have an outcome and then step back from it and go, well, if, if this was a movie, I would feel kind of, you know, wrong and cheated because this side won. So you have to come up with a framework and it's sort of hard for me to think of what that framework was. You know, um, you can think of situations in which both sides are equally morally ambiguous and both deserve a comeuppance at the end, the way that skullduggery or fiasco characters get at the end of a scenario and that feels satisfying. But uh, the option of feeling great about either side winning is, I think, maybe one of the trickiest challenges you'll face in, you know, creating your your framework for this. I think one way that you can do that is the superhero way, where um, you have, uh, in the classic superhero matchup, the two superheroes, and they might be from different universes or just different comic books, they meet, and they have a fight, and then they agree, oh, we are fighting because we have been foolishly neglecting the real danger, which is Brainiac 5 or whatever, right? That there's another thing that's that's a problematic deal, and then they team up to beat on it. And, of course, you can look at uh, the whole history of comic book crossovers for that Justice League, Justice Society, and, of course, the JLA Avengers thing that they did uh, fairly, well, not that recently now, but it, it was done really, really well, where you don't know if you want Captain America or Batman to win, because they both are Captain America and Batman. And I think that that sort of points you to another thing that you can do in role-playing that you obviously can't do in film, where let's say you've got a table of three players and one GM, each of the three players can be two guys, right? So in your heat, player A is De Niro and player B is Pacino, but player A plays Val Kilmer, right? And so there's there's a deal where there's um, a, a bunch of different uh, guys on different teams, but they change the roles around so that... Um, the, the chief pursuer is a different player from the chief pursued, but the other players play assistants or, or sidekicks or backups in that, in that uh, dynamic so that either side that wins, the player will have had half of their role playing lead to them winning and the other half lead to them, you know, you know, in charming anti-hero style being defeated as opposed to being massacred uh, like usually happens in role playing games. Right. Well, I think that's a brilliant solution. So you've given, uh, just to recap, two possible ways of doing that. And one of them is the way in which the characters who might have been friends in another life trope comes into play. But at the end, they do become friends because as the uh, cop is following the bank robber who is drilling into the vault, they get into the vault and uh, there is the alien menace that neither of them expected. Mm -hmm. And then the second one is one in which uh, whoever wins, you won because you're playing both sides. Right. Um, and I think that comprehensively uh, answers uh, Leo's question and allows us to move on to the final segment of this podcast. The clacking of chronotons and the grinding of time gear suggests that we are once more in proximity to Ken's time machine, the vehicle that Time Incorporated sends Ken back into history with so that he can inveigle vodka eyes and adjust the time stream. And in this case, they have, uh, as the holidays approach, uh, perhaps a more trivial mission in mind. Uh, the folks at Time Incorporated have begun to look longingly north to uh, Canada and its more sensible system of having Thanksgiving in the middle of October, thus allowing a nice bridge of time where you can, after seeing your family once, think up new topics, recover from turkey, and you also don't have that hurtling sensation of uh, Thanksgiving firing you like a slingshot through the rest of the holiday season. You can take it in a more leisurely manner. It's not a surprise that uh, 
American Thanksgiving, or as Americans call it, Thanksgiving, is nearer where their harvest would be, since Thanksgiving was thought up as a agrarian-styled holiday in an agrarian era. But now in the modern era of airports and the TSA, Time Incorporated is uh, looking at their travel schedules for the holiday season and wondering, Ken, what you can do to alter the history of the creation of Thanksgiving in order to create this salutary benefit for their own unusually selfish ends. I, I think that first of all, I'm gonna I'm gonna want to see some papers from Time Incorporated here. This uh, this making things more Canadian has got to stop. That's uh, I, I suspect uh, Time Incorporated is perhaps it's the uh, whole point of the entire exercise <laughs> is to make the time stream more sensible and thus more Canadian. <laughs> Americans can have nice things. And, you know, you can't convince them to have nice things. So you have to change the time stream. I'm putting Time Incorporated on notice. If they're wanting me to switch bacon from the belly to the back, they are going to find themselves edited out of the continuity. That is we just... have both types of bacon up yeah, there. Yeah, sure you do. Sure you do. And, and we don't call either of them Canadian bacon. But, that, but that's <laughs> a, a time intervention for another day. Yeah, right. Like I said, they start, they start meddling with bacon and they will see... They will be bringing the thunder. The temporal thunder is what will be brought. It, it is only in America that female bacon is Canadian bacon. One of the one of the many one of the many interesting things about this uh, Thanksgiving controversy is that hilariously, uh, our our actual Thanksgiving controversy over actual Thanksgiving happened during the term of Franklin Delano Roosevelt because he also wanted to move Thanksgiving earlier, but he didn't want to move it to October like a crazy person. He wanted to move it up to the uh, third Thursday in November as it was to the fourth or last Thursday in uh, November as it was established by President Lincoln. Well, and that, that's the problem with America in a nutshell is inc mere incremental Canadianism and unwilling to go the whole hog, as it were. What, what I, what I, if, if, don't even start with the whole hog. We, we've had this discussion. <laughs> um, the, uh, but the hilarious thing is that during Roosevelt's uh, presidency, there was a great controversy as to whether or not you were going to celebrate Thanksgiving or Franksgiving, right? And so Franklin Roosevelt's Thanksgiving, no one celebrated because all the football schedules have been made in advance. And so unless you were, you know, someone who hated football, which is to say a Democrat, you um, uh, you didn't you didn't get to celebrate Thanksgiving with everyone else. You had to celebrate it on crummy Franklin Roosevelt Thanksgiving. Now, opinions of football are the definition of fights I have no dog in. In, in order to cease this feud and a fight and so we could get together and boil the tar out of Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany, we agreed to make Thanksgiving officially the fourth Thursday in November. So that sometimes, if there's five Thursdays in November, uh, you get sort of a Franksgiving, and all the other times you get a proper American Abraham Lincoln Thanksgiving. Now, obviously, it is simple as pie to, um, uh, to, to move Thanksgiving to October, if simple that is what... Simple as pumpkin pie. Simple as pumpkin pie, than which there is nothing simpler. Um, it's one of the simplest of pies. Uh, the, the fact is we don't actually know the date of the original Thanksgiving. We just know that it took place sometime between probably the end of September. And by original Thanksgiving, I mean the Thanksgiving that was celebrated in Plymouth, Massachusetts in 1621 with uh, Massasoit and all the uh, fine happening uh, Wampanoag Indians and the pilgrims uh, hanging out and enjoying turkey and football and beer and all the great things that we enjoy here in Thanksgiving. I'm not talking about the Thanksgiving that Martin Frobisher may or may not have celebrated on the frozen shores of Baffin Island in which he thanked God that he'd only killed 70 of his own men while getting a <laughs> full cargo of iron pyrite to take back to Britain. I'm talking about an actual Thanksgiving. Yes, there's hardly any jellied cranberry involved there's in that one. Hardly any. Most of it was actually the frozen and marrow of his men, um, but it was similar. It's like Canadian bacon. And so, anyway, the um, uh, the the proper first Thanksgiving in uh, in Plymouth happened sometime, as I say, between the end of September and probably mid November. So, like November 11th. So, odds are it probably happened sometime in mid October because, of course, they were celebrating it during the bottom of the Little Ice Age. So, the harvest would have been much much earlier, even in Massachusetts in the 1620s, than it would be even in Massachusetts now or, as we call the Little Ice Age now, Canada. So, obviously, the, um, the, the, the simplest way to get Thanksgiving moved in America is to simply add the date to either of the two journals that we have that mention the first Thanksgiving. Uh, William Bradford uh, wrote a history of plantation, and then there was a guy named Edward Winslow who wrote a diary, that, and both of those sort of turned up during uh, Lincoln's administration. They turned up in Britain, of all places, because the hated British had looted 
uh, the Massachusetts uh, civic records and taken them back after they were run out of uh, Boston by George Washington. So they um, they uh, gave those uh, books back to America, and that sort of set off this sort of Thanksgiving frenzy in the United States, and uh, Abraham Lincoln sort of, I don't want to say at random, but to match a uh, more apropos harvest festival in the Midwest, moved uh, Thanksgiving um, to the final Thursday of November. And that is the date that, that was established as American Thanksgiving. So, if you simply write into one of those diaries, you, you with your uh, with my forging uh, capability, which is not super tough, if all I'm writing is the words October 19th or whatever, I can put that in, and Lincoln will have those books, and everyone will say, oh, well, if we're having Thanksgiving in October, I guess we're having Thanksgiving in October, because that's how the pilgrims did it. And so, that that's probably the simplest way to get Lincoln to proclaim Thanksgiving as an October holiday as opposed to a November holiday. Uh, George Washington, of course, uh, proclaimed um, Thanksgiving for the uh, uh, last day of uh, last Thursday of November. So you sort of have to get around that. I'm not sure how you talk George Washington out of moving Thanksgiving, but it may just be a simple matter of having a copy of the diary that you show to his chief of staff or someone, or it might just be, you know, like many things that George Washington did that we have sadly fallen away from. Uh, you allow uh, the modern Thanksgiving to stick with Lincoln's proclamation instead of Washington's. And so uh, often when you mention the simple way of doing it, you have a, a more a theatrical way of doing it. Do you have something else in your back pocket? Well, the the problem with a theatrical way of doing it is that my general resentment of the whole notion is uh, probably preventing me from coming up with a full-on uh, production version of moving Thanksgiving. I think that it, it would certainly be fun to, uh, in the sense of, it would cause Franklin Delano Roosevelt to grind his teeth more to have that fight again, only have Roosevelt trying to move it up to October so that we uh, uh, split the difference and it winds up somewhere around Veterans Day. But I think that uh, in terms of the larger uh, way of moving Thanksgiving around, probably the only really good way to, to do it a lot is to get the earlier batch of presidents to keep doing Thanksgiving. Uh, what, what happens is after Washington's Thanksgiving, there's every so often a president will declare a Thanksgiving day. Thomas Jefferson didn't because, of course, he was uh, famously uh, not particularly interested in the divine providence's uh, machinations, as he was beginning to suspect that they were not going to be really favorable to Thomas Jefferson. Someone should have uh, pitched it to him as a, a wine festival. As a wine f That's right, yes. If, if you do it um, uh, the same day that the Nouveau Beaujolais come out, we'd have Thanksgiving in, what, April? <laughs> <laughs> but, um, uh, uh, and then of course, uh, Congress made James Madison offer Thanksgiving for the end of James Madison's stupid war of 1812, which he probably didn't like that much. Um, and then, uh, he just sort of declared random Thanksgivings, uh, later on in his term. So I, th I think you could probably, if you could get sort of a general policy that the president declares Thanksgiving whenever they want, you can get it down to the point where once you have to sort of, you know, establish football schedules around it, you can maybe have everyone agree that since we don't have an existing Thanksgiving date, we'll just go with the one written down here in this in this diary that President Lincoln likes. I I, I think that um, really the only fun thing about that is that it means I get to go and eat turkey with a whole lot of presidents, which is not terrible, but it's um, you know it's going to pad out my uh, my expense account certainly when I come back. Plus all the Madeira I'm going to have to bring Jefferson. Um, well, then this brings us to our next question, which is. Uh... Having done so, uh, which president did you most enjoy having Thanksgiving dinner with? Well, you know, I think obviously one has to say Taft is going to be a great Thanksgiving president, right? I mean, there's just no way that William Howard is not going to uh, get a Thanksgiving done. I, I think that he must have been probably a, a great Thanksgiving president. I think also um, Franklin Pierce, as our highest functioning alcoholic president, would probably have made <laughs> a pretty great uh, Thanksgiving. He is the only president who was pulled over for drunk driving, for example. Harding probably would have thrown a pretty great day after Thanksgiving party. I don't think the Thanksgiving would have been so great, but I think the turkey sandwiches and chasing the housemaids around might have been kind of a good time. Um, I, I think that, uh, again, you get Jefferson sloshed enough. There's probably a pretty good Thanksgiving going on there. But yeah, I think William Howard Taft, for what Thanksgiving is about, which is to say, thanking God that we are in America and not some miserable cold country where they don't know what bacon is. <laughs> You're the ones who are confused about bacon, dude. I think William Howard Taft is gonna is gonna put is gonna put the Thanksgiving uh put put Thanksgiving right. He is 
he is everything that a Thanksgiving ought to be. He's a big, fat, happy Republican, and that's and that's Thanksgiving in a nutshell. And so, would I be right in assuming then that your least favorite Thanksgiving dinner would be uh, Woodrow Wilson, or is there a uh, worse <laughs> candidate than that? Well, it depends on whether or not I'm allowed to sneak a, a sharp bone into his uh, into into his turkey and uh, have him choke to death uh, right there at the first Thanksgiving that he proclaims. Now, now we still have a no presidential assassinations policy at Time Incorporated. Not certain that we have that policy. Again, I think that that was written into the side. But um, I don't know that. Uh, Wilson uh, is not um, as, as abstemious a president as some of us. I think Buchanan was the only non-drinking president that we had, uh, or maybe Hayes. There's a couple of presidents that haven't drunk, and that's going to be a problem at Thanksgiving, regardless of whether you're with a president or not. I, I just wouldn't like hanging out with Wilson uh, just probably as, as a human being, because he's a arrogant, uh, pinch-faced uh, person. Unlike most presidents who are great on retail, you know, Bill Clinton... George Bush, whatever else you may say about them, people came away from meeting them and they say, those are those are great guys. I like those guys. With Wilson, I have no idea how he got to be governor of New Jersey, much less uh, president of the United States, because that guy, um, he, he does not, he, he looks like the kind of guy who, as they say, the stick up his ass has a stick up its ass. So I don't think that he's going to be that great at Thanksgiving either. Although obviously when he, um, uh, when he had a mind to, he was able to uh, charm the ladies. So maybe that's maybe that's the secret: is you bring someone to distract him, and then you uh, spend the whole time talking to Colonel House. And uh, among the presidents that you're having Thanksgiving dinner with, is there a great historical mystery that you think you could uh, winkle out over uh, turkey and stuffing? Um, I, I think that that's probably a, a bigger thing that you I, you know I don't believe that Thanksgiving is created to allow independent films to reveal the dysfunctional nature of the family. I think Thanksgiving is created to eat, drink, and watch football, but um, I, I think that finding a, a secret is probably not what I would like to do. What It might be fun, uh, the uh, President of the United States under the Ar Articles of Confederation, John Hansen, uh, is the first President of the United States to declare Thanksgiving, and it might have been fun to sort of just get his take on the Articles of Confederation, right? Because the thing about being President tends to be that once you become president, you sort of realize what the job actually is. And we have a lot of information about the actual presidents, uh, Washington and on down, but we don't really have a response to the guy who suddenly realizes he has to run things under the articles. And I think that might have been an interesting thing to talk about over um, uh, the last of the Madeira and uh, the, the extra uh, wing and leg. I think John Hanson might have been a, a good uh, president to talk uh, Thanksgiving and Turkey with. So I, I sense that this segment is... Uh Drifting into a tryptophan-like torpor, so I will uh, free you from the urge of uh, fighting the premise any further and declare uh, stuff having been talked about once again. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Steven Jankowitz. Slabtown Games. Kotadama Heavy Industries. Dork Tower. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Help keep this golem off going by clicking the donate button at kennerobintalkaboutstuff.com. Exploit our reach by advertising with us. Grab the rate sheet at our site. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>